So today is Tuesday, June 5th, 2018, and we're in the Open Way Mindfulness Center in Missoula, Montana. Yay. So when I first heard this uh, sutra, I, I liked it a lot. And so I was drawn to talk on this sutra this evening when Peggy asked me many moons ago if I would give a talk. I am like Rasa sometimes. I don't like a lot of words. So uh, I, I want to repeat the sutra but in a very succinct way. So I'm just going to read the first sentence or two of each of the eight realizations. So the first one is the world is impermanent. Political regimes are subject to fall. The second one is more desire brings more suffering. The third the human mind is always searching outside itself, but never feels fulfilled. Fourth, indolence is an obstacle to practice. Fifth, ignorance is the cause of endless round of birth and death. Six, poverty creates hatred and anger. Seven, the five categories of sensual desire, money, sex, fame, overeating, oversleeping, lead to problems. And eight, the fire of birth and death is raging, causing endless suffering everywhere. When I was on a retreat, Thank you. When I was on a retreat with uh, Eileen Kira many years ago, she had us um, memorize one realization. And I, I found it helpful just to memorize the first sentence, because I, I could do that much. A um, couple of months ago, I was in conversation with a monk uh, Plum Village Monk, and I knew I was going to talk on this sutra. So we were talking about it uh, together, and he invited me to consider um, that there are two kinds of sutras, that there are insight sutras and there are practice sutras. And the eight realization of great beings is an insight sutra. Uh, but we're not able to have insight without practice. So he was helping me see the connection between this sutra and the Anapada Sati Sutra, or the Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing, which is in this book, Breathe, You Are Alive, by Thich Nhat Hanh. And so the guided meditation that we did this evening came right out of this, this sutra. Uh, the Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing. So I, I found this really helpful to connect uh, Insight Sutra with Practice Sutra. 
And, as, and so I, I really began to use this sutra to work with the sutra on the eight realizations of great beings. And in the introduction to this sutra, Thay writes, there are many great sutras, but approaching them without this sutra, the sutra on the full awareness of breathing, is like trying to reach the top of a mountain without a path to go on. So I brought up this image of uh, the times I've been out hiking, and sometimes the path disappears, or you're with a group of friends, and they say, hey, let's bushwhack, or whatever. And, uh, and I found that uh, experience of trying to get up the mountain bushwhacking or walking on scree that descends beneath your feet, uh, very, very challenging, even frustrating. And uh, so on, on the trail, on a path, our footing is more secure. And even with the trail, even with the path, it can be very difficult to get up the mountain. So we need all the help we can get. So I, I also love this uh, sutra very much. And um, if you haven't had a chance to practice with it, it's, uh, it's been a wonderful way for me to practice. So I want to plant that seed. So this uh, sutra um, begins with the first realization that the, the world is impermanent. Uh, so what is impermanence? There's a, a Japanese Zen master, Dogen, who writes, impermanence itself, back up, impermanence is itself Buddha nature. So uh, going back to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings uh, that are familiar to most of us about a flower and looking at the flower with the eyes of impermanence, Thich Nhat Hanh reminds us that the flower uh, comes into being when the conditions are right and the flower transitions to compost or garbage as the, as the conditions change. And so this is, this is pointing to impermanence, right? Um, the flower is changing over time. And there's also uh, another thing about the flower that Tai talks about a lot, which is um, the non-self nature of the flower. So, Thay reminds us that there are many non-flower elements contributing to the flower coming into being, like the air and the pollen and the insects and the earthworms and the rain and the sunshine. So these are all the um, non-flower elements that help make what we call a flower, and and Tai tells us that impermanence is change over time, and and non-self are the same. 
right? So this sutra is pointing to, to both impermanence and, and non-self. So when we, we look, when we look in terms of time, we say impermanence. And when we look in terms of space, we say non-self. And I was really struck that uh, Tai uses this uh, image of a, of a flower, which, I mean, you could have a big flower, like a sunflower, but generally flowers are, are petite. And this sutra, on the other hand, it says the world is impermanent. So it's like we get impermanence on the micro level with the flower, and then we get impermanence on this macro level with, with the world and political regimes being subject to fall. So both the flower and political regimes carry this universal truth of impermanence. So I've heard Tai and others encourage, and other teachers encourage us to uh, practice with impermanence. And in some ways, I, I have. But I, I began to see that I, I, don't, I don't have it as a daily practice. Um, and so knowing that I was going to speak on this sutra, I began to uh, practice with the idea of impermanence more. So I had what I am now calling a non-self bath towel meditation. So uh, I, I greeted my bath towel. And uh, yeah, just um, it, the, the beginning of the sutra, the piece on impermanence, also talks about everything being made up of the four elements. So uh, everything being made up of uh, water, earth, fire, and air. And you know, I looked at my bath towel. You know, where did you come from, bath towel? And I figured it was probably mostly cotton. And all of a sudden, you know, the bath towel became a cotton plant. Um, and the meditation began of the, the, uh, the air, the soil, the earthworms, the pollen, the uh, sunshine, the rain, everything that is needed to allow cotton to grow. It was really similar to the flower, but my bath towel looks really different from a flower. And I, I've lived in the South, so I've watched uh, cotton grow. And so I ha had the image of the young cotton plant. And then as it, as it matures, as it gets close to harvest, it kind of begins to, the plant begins to die. And you see the white clumps of cotton ready, ready to be picked. And I've been doing a lot of work with uh, U.S. history and 
in particular looking at, at racism and its legacy in slavery. And I could see people in the South in, from, from pictures that have you know, come to us of people picking cotton in the fields. And I've never picked cotton myself, but what I've read is that it's uh, hard work. It's um, the cotton plant will stick into your tips of your fingers over time, and it can be painful if you're not, and you, your fingertips can actually bleed. It's very common to have women and children picking cotton. So all, all this came to me from my non-self towel. Um, cotton also in this country generated enormous wealth and was um, was, was wanted in Europe, and it helped build infrastructure in this country, like our trains to get the cotton to the coast, and shipbuilding. It was part of an, an enormous uh, economic engine in the first half of the 19th century. So my towel began to tell a whole, uh, there was a lot of history, a lot of life in my towel. And I, at this point, I needed, wanted to see what the towel said on the label. And it said it was uh, made in India. And um, so that, for me, I imagine the People are picking cotton by hand in India. It's not mechanized as it is today in the United States. When we're on retreat, sometimes we look at a plate of food and we say the plate of food contains much suffering. And so I began to see that my towel contained much suffering. And I see that people have struggled and suffered to produce an object that I largely take for granted. And you know, this was, this was looking at a, a towel. We can also look at uh, one another with uh, eyes of impermanence, our family, our co-workers. Might be a good meditation for someone you're having difficulty with.
Well, I want to share a quote by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, that touches on the kind of the, well, I'll read the quote. I think that's, I think you'll understand the connection. I don't need to frame it. Um, Ty writes, this is in Pieces Every Step. Let us look at wealth and poverty, the affluent society and the deprived society inter are. The wealth of one society is made up of the poverty of the other. The truth is that everything contains everything else. We cannot just be, we can only interbe. We are responsible for everything that happens around us. I want to um, shift to the second, uh, the next two realizations, both of which have to do with uh, desire or clinging, grasping. So since everything is impermanent, nothing can be grasped or held on to. And when we try to do that, we, we often suffer. So all of us, I think it's true that all of us have had grasping energy at one time or another. Sometimes that uh, grasping energy can cause uh, a little bit of suffering. Sometimes it can cause a lot of suffering. I, as I was thinking about uh, these next two realizations, um, I recalled my cousin Bill, who died about 12 years ago. I think he was approximately age 50. And he, he had a heart attack. And he, he died because of um, decades of cocaine use. So cocaine compromises our cardiovascular system. So that was a big, big suffering. Um, maybe most, mostly for uh, Bill's family. Um, but some few days ago, I was sitting in my living room and I was thinking about the, the talk for this evening. And uh, my mind began to um, grasp onto the notion that uh, it would be good to, to, to feed me chocolate. And um, I didn't notice this right away. I'm kind of thinking that I'm thinking about this talk and planning some for this talk, but actually the mind is in the refrigerator checking to see if there's a couple bars of chocolate still on the door, and the mind decided that that chocolate was gone, impermanent. Then uh, the mind went to the cupboard, opened the cupboard, 
looked in, was wondering if there was any more of that chocolate pumpkin brownie mix that had been in there. And decided it wasn't, but kind of, you know, cycling through everything that I'd seen in the cupboard in recent uh, days. Uh, the mind uh, looked in my purse, in my backpack, all the kind of usual suspect places where chocolate might be hiding out. So um, I, I think because I was preparing this talk, I actually caught this, <laughs> that this, this was what, what was happening. And uh, so I, I stopped, I stopped, and um, just, uh, just by stopping and taking a couple of breaths, I was able to see that what was really going on was anxiety arising in the body. I had uh, started some new work recently, and I was nervous about this, this talk, and I, um, and that there was anxiety, and it was sort of being masked by this craving for, for chocolate, something to satiate. So the third realization is the human mind is always searching outside itself and never feels fulfilled. And there it was. Yeah, and then I, you know, I actually needed to, to stop some more and take care of my anxiety. So one of the practices that's been helpful to me is to actually put a hand on my belly to help me connect with the breath because um, when the mind is <laughs> wants its way, it, it can be difficult, it can be challenging to really stop and come home. So actually the physical practice of putting the hand on my belly um, to support connecting with my breathing and then uh, the left hand being like the hand of Avalokita, trying not to hit the mic, uh, placing it on my heart to remind myself to just to have compassion for myself. And yeah, so I'm gonna just take a moment to do this right now. And I can just feel my shoulders um, begin to drop. And um, and when I was in my living room and I was uh, offering myself this this practice, uh, after about five breaths, I realized that I was actually thirsty. Um, that I, I I needed to drink water. And I felt uh, that craving, that grasping, come up for water. And uh, just you know, when I when the seed of mindfulness can can arise and support us, you know, I had that 
some impulse to jump up and go get a glass of water. And instead I just, ah, you know, create thirst. You know, and that craving to quench the thirst is just with that also. And then I was able to mindfully stand and walk with awareness over to the sink. And there was a empty bottle that had a tea in it before it filled the bottle with water. Again, the impulse is to just guzzle. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I was aware of that impulse, and I thought, I'm going to take a couple of swallows of water. So I did that, set the, the bottle, the jar down, took another breath, another breath. Okay, I'll have some more water. So, um, yeah, not being carried away by that. Grasping the, those impulses, that craving to, to get something or to satiate something. Ah, and thanks to Ty, um, I brought to mind the gata around water. Water comes from high in the mountains, it comes from deep in the earth, it sustains all life, including mine. I've modified the gata a little. So I've filled the jar again, or the bottle again, brought it back to my workspace, sat down, and was able to, to kind of pick up and re-engage with the sutra and my work and my focus. I was uh, reading an article by Norm Fisher, and he said that the he said that the Buddha said, "There's nothing more harmful than an untrained mind." So I'm going to conclude. Um, I'm going to give us an a very brief, 30-second exercise to conclude. But before I do that, uh, I want to share that Ty, in 1978, asked uh, Laboy Press, which is the press that publishes Ty's works in Vietnamese, he asked the press to give this sutra away quote, in order to pray for those boat people who drowned in the South China Sea and the Gulf of Siam in the prior three years. And he also asked uh, for people to pray for those who had a chance to survive and find a new home somewhere in the world. And then in 1987, he asked Parallax Press to publish a new English edition of the sutra in order to make it available to Western readers. So just to conclude, I want to invite you to, uh, to close your eyes, if you're comfortable closing your eyes. 
and take uh, three breaths. And when you open your eyes, you don't have to make eye contact with anyone in the room, but can look at someone or the community as a whole. Just take a few moments and look, look at one another with the eyes of impermanence. Peggy to give us three sounds. Then. 